There's a woman with an old load of grass Weaving a basket That'll fall the Rio Grande Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Brian McLaren. Brian is an author, speaker, activist, and public theologian. He just released his newest book, Faith After Doubt, Why Your Belief Stopped Working and What to Do About It. Also musically featured throughout this episode is the Oh Hellos. The Oh Hellos are a folk band from Texas. You can get connected with Brian and the Oh Hellos in their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have one of my favorite people in the entire world, uh, Brian McLaren. And Brian, you are lots of things to lots of different people. Uh, For me, at least, you're kind of this sort of unofficial spiritual mentor. Uh, You've meant so much to me over the last several years. Um, I first remember reading your books when I was a freshman in college, and here I am almost about to graduate with my Master of Divinity. It's just so great to see like how my own journey has really been accompanied by you this entire time. And so uh, again, you're lots of things to lots of people, but who is Brian McLaren to Brian McLaren? <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, first, it's very kind to hear you say that. And I'm, I'm honored if I've been of help to you or anybody else in any way. Um, so, you know, uh, these days I feel like I'm a grandpa. My, my, <laughs> uh, one of my sons and his wife and two daughters are quarantining with us. So, oh, wonderful. Uh, in Florida? I feel like in Florida. Lovely. And so, uh, you know, they, they can work remotely and the kids are in school remotely. So uh, that worked out. And uh, yeah, I just, I, I was a pastor for 24 years. Um, uh, before that, I was a college English teacher. And um, today you would know Shane Claiborne, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and Shane and his wife, uh, uh, Katie Joe, were in town and we oh, went great. and took a, a drive and a hike in the Everglades and saw, and I, I'm a bird lover and Katie Joe is also a bird lover. So we saw roseate spoonbills and Ooh. pileated woodpeckers and uh, all kinds of herons and egrets and storks. So we had a, we had a great time. And that's probably what you need to know about me. I love the outdoors. I love nature and that sort of thing. You know, I've I've always thought, you know, if for whatever reason the writing thing doesn't continue to keep working out, you could always become the next Steve Irwin. Uh, listen, I I loved Steve Irwin, and uh, th- that would be that would be a lot of fun. If if you know, I I don't believe in reincarnation, but if it did, my vote would be let me come <laughs> back as a as a nature guy who hangs out with crocodiles. That'd be great. I love it. I love it. So, uh, but with that said, you did you did recently write a new book. It's going to be coming out uh, this coming year, and I'm just so excited for it. Um, and it's called Faith After Doubt. 
Uh, and you know, you've written so many books, uh, you do probably countless at this point. You probably don't even know how many you've written. It's been so many, but, uh, you know, even in every writing of every book that you've done, I'm sure there's a little bit more that you learn about yourself. So what did you learn about yourself while you wrote faith after doubt? Well, um, you know, the last time you and I talked, it was about my previous book, uh, the Galapagos islands. And, uh, when I was finishing that book, it turns out my other set of grandkids were visiting. Mm. And I had this deep, when they left, I had this sort of, it wasn't like a clinical depression, but it was for me, a very unusual depth of sadness just came over me. And Mm. I, I like, it was intense enough that it took me a long time to come, you know, come to terms with. And I started to realize that what I was so happy about what, what I was sad about only makes sense in what I was happy about. And I was happy that my grandkids were being raised without the kind of religion I was raised mm. with. Um, and, and then you say, well, where's the sadness? Well, the sadness came that I feel like I raised my kids, not in the kind of religion I was raised in, but adjacent to it. And my grandkids were being raised one step farther. But then what really came over me is, oh, you know what I'm really sad about is being around my grandkids and seeing how free they are. And then I remembered what the kind of religion I grew up with did to me. And I think I was having sadness for the version of me that was eight years old mm-hmm. or, or whatever. And, and that and, and that's connects to this book, Faith After Doubt, because one of the things I'm trying to help people see is that what faith is supposed to be is not a list of beliefs that you have to be afraid of going to hell if you don't subscribe to. Um, but it's, it's something else. And so that's, that's one thing. Maybe if I could mention one other thing, mm-hmm. um, Mason, when, when I got to the end of the book, I, I just had this sentence pop out of me as I was writing it. I thought, that's what I've been trying to say since the beginning of the book. And, and here's what it was. It was this realization that part of my faith was connected with this idea of supremacy, that to be a Christian meant I had to believe that Christianity was the supreme religion. Mm-hmm. And that in some ways, all that my doubts had eventually done is they didn't take away my love for Jesus or my faith and in, in, in my commitment to faith, hope, and love is the greatest three things. Didn't take away that it took away the idea of the supremacy of my religion or of any religion. Mm. And I thought, wow, if what faith does is burns away our supremacy, and that's a pretty good thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so those are a couple of realizations in the book. Yeah, certainly faith at its best is, is certainly doing that. Yes. You said you were spending a lot of time with your grandchildren. And so maybe you've, in that time, been thinking about your own childhood quite a bit. And so I'm yeah. curious, especially as it relates to this book, when was it that you first experienced any sort of doubt as a child? That's a good question. I I don't think I I don't think I would have even known what that word means, right? Mm. Because I was raised in a really serious Christian family and and also I think when you're a child you know the the word raised when we say we raise children to be raised in some ways means your parents lift you up to where they are. So I would say my first 
doubts probably came when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. And they came through science because I was so intrigued with animals and evolution made so much sense to me. And I knew that my church was totally against evolution. And so I remember having this feeling like, oh, when I get older, I'm probably going to have to leave this because evolution makes a lot of sense to mm. me. So yeah. that would probably be the first thing. That's interesting. Uh, something that I've heard Rob Bell say many times is that once you see, you can no longer unsee. Yeah. Once you taste, you can no longer untaste. Yeah. And I think doubt really plays a significant role yeah. in that uh, once you see, you can no longer unsee. Uh, yeah. For myself, purity culture was really sort of my first significant theological thing that I could yes. um, no longer unsee uh, yes. when I started to really see what purity culture really was. Yes. Um, and so that's for my own faith. But I'm really curious about um, what was like maybe the first big theological doubt, you know, obviously post, you know, your childhood now. But what was yeah. your first like big theological doubt that you could no longer unsee? Yeah. Well, um, you know, the idea that uh, Christians go to heaven for believing the right things and everybody else goes to hell, uh, that sure never made a lot of sense to me. <laughs> um, and so I think what happened with that is I sort of said, well, my religion requires me to believe that. I probably don't actually believe it, but I, I'm just going to try to avoid it. I mean, that's honestly probably what I did at the beginning. It was only later that I really grappled with that more intensely. I, I, I'll be honest with you, Mason. If I'd been a better person, I would have doubted that soon, sooner, mm. and I would have doubted it more aggressively. But I don't think I had that much independence yet to to think about that. Um, uh, you certainly, you know, w when you bring up the subject of sex, I think... You know, I, I remember having this feeling like uh, that I was made to feel so guilty about being a sexual being. And I, and I remember thinking, this doesn't seem like it's good for a person psychologically. <laughs> right. um, and of course, your religion tells you to blame yourself for that. But I, I think part of me didn't want to blame, uh, blame myself for that. Um, but gosh, I, what it feels like as I just think about it now is wave after wave of things came one after another. Uh, politics, oh my gosh. I remember, mm -hmm. you know, my, I, I got involved in the Jesus movement. After growing up in a very strict religion, uh, I was on my way kind of out. And then I had this experience connected to the Jesus movement. Um, and I remember in 1979 when a, they used to call them Jesus papers, but there were these, you know, periodicals that got sent around the country. And I read one that said all the Jesus people in California were lining up to vote for Ronald Reagan. And I remember thinking, what? <laughs> you know? and, and watching the growth of the religious right really caused problems for me because I mm. thought if, this if these people are actually in touch with God and the spirit is supposed to be guiding them and they're falling for this foolishness, uh, something doesn't seem right. Sand and laying borders as tall as towers. I babble on until my voice is gone. This hill I'll die on is about 90 meters of bricks. In the beginning of the book, you talk about doubt as loss. Yeah. And one of the things that I think many people who begin to doubt the religion that they have been given 
is that they quickly realize that they may start to lose their community if they continue down that path of doubt. What would you encourage to the person who may be listening right now, who is in a really similar situation as that right now, where they've begun to doubt their given religion and now are starting to sense that they might be losing a lot of their community? My gosh. Uh, Well, it's the first thing I have to say, uh, Mason, is that as you said that, it brought back a memory from my high school years. the the Jesus people group that I was part of uh, got very into faith healing, and they got very into what now we call prosperity gospel stuff. But it was this name it and claim it kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you're sick, claim your healing and all the rest. And I had that just I had a hundred reasons for not thinking that that made sense. Um, one of which is I kept trying it, and it kept not working. And um, I thought if somebody's got to be more sincere than me for this to work, I don't think it's going to work, you know. So I remember I called my friend. Her, this is really her name. Her name was Mary Lou. Mm. And I called Mary Lou and I said, Mary Lou, I think I'm, the, I'm probably the only person. You're probably going to hate me for this. But all this stuff they're talking about, it makes no sense at all to me. I don't think it's right. And there's this moment of silence. And she says, oh, my God. And I thought, oh, no, she hates me. And she said, I thought I was the only person Mm. having these questions. And then this was back in the days. Of course, this was long before cell phones. This was landlines. And we people were first getting the capacity for something called a conference call, a three way call. And she says, can I put our our mutual friend, Scott, can I put Scott on this call? Um, Because I really I think he's feels like you and I do. Well, the thing I would say to people is you have to find at least one person you can tell your truth to who's not going to judge you and condemn you. And if you can't, if, if you don't have any safe person in your current circle of friends, this is something to, to really start looking mm. for uh, because it's, it's super hard to go through these things alone. Mm-hmm. That was the first thing that I noticed when I first started moving out of my conservative evangelical upbringing. Uh, you know, I mentioned before I was starting to reading, started reading a lot of your work, Tony Jones, Doug, uh, Rob Bell, all of those folks uh, early on in my college career. And one of the things I quickly realized was as, as simultaneously as I was losing a part of my community that I had grown up with, I also felt like in a, in a certain sense that I was gaining a community because of the fact that here was a community of Christians that I had no idea existed. I thought yes. growing up, the liberal Christian out there, the, the, the token liberal Christian out there was Joel Osteen, right? Like that was the kind of <laughs> yes. conservative evangelicalism that yes. I was a part of, that Joel Osteen was uh, the liberal. And so to find a group of Christians that were exploring these doubts and questions in the same way that I was, it felt like, okay, I am not the only person. And then this is my community now. So I was experiencing sort of this gaining of a community and losing of a community at the same time. Well, that's a a situation now that I'm so happy about and so grateful for. Because, uh, you know, when I was coming up, there were very, very few settings where this would ever be talked about. And, um, And now what's happened is because of books and especially because of podcasts like yours, really, you know, the word gets out and people find mm-hmm. that, oh, there's these people having conversations. And so you don't have to feel alone for so long. And and the, the other thing I guess I'd say is there are some people who are in a 
town or a you know situation where there is no safe person to talk to. And then I'd say the next best thing in the short run is is get the right list of podcasts and, and right. stay stay tuned to those. Yeah. I've I've known a lot of pastors especially who um you know it's it's too visible for them to be reading certain yes. kind of books. And so really podcasts in a lot of ways are kind of their safest bet to be able to actually explore a lot of these questions without um with having some degree of anonymity, which is really interesting. Yeah, that's exactly right. I can't tell you how many, uh, how many people I've met through the years who, uh, who are clergy, whose faith has been saved by two things. Uh, one is podcasts, um, <laughs> for exactly the reason you say, and the other is a Catholic spiritual director. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and so they'd be Protestants, and they could sneak into a Catholic retreat center that had a spiritual director, and those folks didn't even know any Protestants, so you really were anonymous, and they'd right. have a safe place to open their heart uh, to someone who understood. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. In the middle of the book, you talk about these different faith stages that people are on. Can you talk a little bit more about what these faith stages are and why they're really sure. important in how we think about doubt? Well, as I was struggling through all of this myself, um, I was probably my toughest period of doubt, really. I, I went through several different waves, but uh, one of the toughest periods happened in graduate school. And... Uh, and I, I, while I was in graduate school studying literary criticism and, you know, literary theory, which, you know, is what English majors do, that's where what we now call postmodern philosophy mm. was really entering the academy in the United States. And uh, so I was in the deep end on all this stuff. And um, I was invited to go to professional development uh, uh, training day, basically to help. I had a teaching fellowship, so it was to help college teachers who'd never had education courses to get some basic educational theory. That was the first time I was exposed to a human developmental theorist. Mm. And uh, so that was William Perry. And I, I just soaked it all in. And I felt like he helped me understand that doubt was a necessary part of human growth. Mm. And that to be in a community that wouldn't allow you to grow meant that you could only grow to the level of that community. <laughs> And uh, so I devoured William Perry, and then that led me to all these other human developmentalists through the years. And as I, as I read all their different systems, I, I tried to integrate them. And so I came up with this very simple four-stage um, uh, schema that, uh, that I always have to explain to people, don't think of these in terms of like, um, you know, places on a map that first you go through stage one and then you pass through that and then you mm -hmm. go through stage two, but to think of it like rings on a tree. And so the innermost ring is simplicity and that's the stage of dualism. And then the next ring that grows out from that and includes that is the ring of complexity. And that's really a pragmatic ring that's a, a, a really about skills and, and knowledge. And, and then from perplexity, the next ring is perplexity. And perplexity is where I learn the skill of critical thinking. And I become critical of all those things that I learned in stages one and two. And then comes a, a, a stage of integrating those first three, and I call that harmony. Looking for the shapes in the silence. 
One of the things that I find really interesting about a lot of us within progressive Christianity is that, you know, we, we, a lot of us have experienced these sort of moments of doubt. You know, a lot of us have come out of more fundamentalist and, and evangelical and, you know, other conservative religious traditions. Um, and I think there's sometimes this, this assumption, maybe early on when one is starting to explore some sort of progressive faith, is that you know I'll experience the, I'll experience these doubts now, but eventually I'll yes. kind of enter into a space of comfortability, or I will I'll be in a space where I no longer am doubting. Um, yes. And I think that assumption, at least from my experience, is just could not be further from the truth. I've experienced that once I started down this path or this you know if you, you want to say a slippery slope of doubt, <laughs> I yes. have only doubted even more since. And yeah. so with all of that said, I would imagine your experience is probably similar. Um, so I'm curious, what are maybe some theological or spiritual doubts that you've recently even had, you know, despite the fact that you've been in this yeah. progressive Christian world for many years? Yeah. So first of all, I completely agree with your, I think your question is really uh, smart and good, and I definitely want to answer it. But um, I want to say, uh, Mason, that I think there is this assumption that many of us were given. I don't think everybody in every religion is given this. Um, but in the, the especially Protestant and Catholic strains of Christianity, we're given this idea that what faith is, is a set of beliefs. Mm. And, and then the idea is, oh, I have a doubt about this one belief. So uh, if we can use some theological nerd language, oh, I'm having doubts about my eschatology. So maybe I can unscrew my eschatology module and then screw in a better, you know, component. Mm. Um, and, and I think that is the kind of doubt that really gets a person from stage one into stage two. Um, and, uh, and then I think when you pass through what I call perplexity stage three, you start doubting whether the whole focus on beliefs is what really even makes sense, you know? Mm. Um, and, and so then you start doubting things like, am I ever even able to make a statement about anything that is beyond tentative, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and how do I qualify how limited my knowledge is about every single thing? <laughs> um, and so, uh, uh, to me, that that's the, a, a different kind of doubt and questions that you have in stage three. In late stage three, you have the, in some ways, the deepest doubts of all, and that is when you become, you think critically about your own critical thinking, and you become skeptical about your own skepticism, right? And you start thinking, hold it, maybe me having all this critical thinking is just a function of my privilege, and you know, mm. and, and and you. And there's this sort of deconstruction of your deconstruction, if you will. Mm. So, and so uh, I give all that preview because I really don't have doubts about so many of those beliefs that I grew up with mm. because I just don't even see those as the, to me, I don't think about them as things that I believe or doubt. To me, I now think of them as conveyors of meaning. Mm. Um, so like, for example, I, I, was asked to preach a sermon a few months ago on the book of Esther, right? Like, I never even ask myself, do I think the story of Esther really happened? Um, I, it's just not, I don't know if it happened. There's no way for me to know. 
why would anybody tell the story? And, and that is what becomes interesting to mm -hmm. me, mm -hmm. the meaning of the story. So having said all that, now I want to answer your question. <laughs> uh, because I used to have doubts about whether Christianity could survive. Um, and now my bigger doubt is that Christianity might survive and destroy everybody. Mm. Um, and now my deeper question is, can the human species even survive? And I know that might sound very dark, and I'm saying it somewhat cheerfully and lightheartedly. But, you know, I, I worry about that. Uh, mm. and, and I don't worry about it like it would be the end of the world if human beings stopped existing. Because I have to say, the planet itself might be better off if human beings, uh, you know, didn't exist, as opposed to human beings going on like they're going now. And then that circles me back to say, but I can't give up because uh, I love human beings and I, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and I love this world. So how can we help human beings become what they need to be to not be so destructive of themselves and, and of the earth? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't okay. know. Does that does that answer your question? Does that does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I, I I love that last piece, especially. I think that was incredibly insightful. And we'll we'll dive actually, I think, in a little bit, uh, a little deeper into that. But but before we get into that, I am curious about uh, you know towards the end of the book, you start really talking about some of the revolutionary love and and yes. doubt as love, and and so I'm curious, um, how can doubting be an act of revolutionary love? Mm. Well, interesting example, you and I as white, uh, white males, you know, there's still a whole lot of white males who grew up, grow up thinking that they have the keys to the car, you know, mm -hmm. that, uh, that we're the, the leaders and the rulers and, and add the word Christian and, and white Christian males, uh, you know, they, they're right now either a very arrogant or a very desperate group of people, it seems like, because the privilege that they've had for a long time, uh, it, it's just like you, you don't have to consciously try to learn it. it. It seeps into you through your cultural conditioning in so many ways that we can't even imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and uh, so ironically, to be a privileged white Christian male and then to have the courage to doubt your privilege and to doubt your whiteness and to doubt what Christianity has done to the world and, and especially has done to women and to non-straight white men, you know, you, you start taking all of that seriously and you realize that if you don't come to doubt your white male Christian privilege. In fact, your straight white male Christian mm -hmm. privilege. If you don't come to doubt that, then you'll go through the world treating everybody else like second-class citizens. Mm -hmm. And you won't even know it because you've been taught that this is the way the world is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then take it one step farther, you know, and I can't help but do this now. It's just so much part of, you know, who I've become. But you not only think about your pecking order with your fellow humans, but then you think our, our relationship to the planet, it, and if we continue destroying the planet, where this leads, so suddenly realize I've got to doubt these things that send me into the world in a certain way in order for me to learn to live in the world in a better way. Now, the, here's the irony. You and I know 
The, the biblical word, the super Jesus-y word for this is repentance. Mm -hmm. you, people don't realize to repent means to doubt what you used mm -hmm. to think. Mm -hmm. So it means mm -hmm. literally second thoughts. Have second thoughts about your assumptions. Today we have Maggie Heath and Tyler Heath from the wonderful folk band called The Oh Hellos. You may have heard of them once or twice. So you all did a four EP series over the last couple of years. Can you tell me a little bit about what that series entails and what you were really trying to capture in those four EPs? We started this EP series thinking we would do four EPs because we thought that we could write them more we thought we could have a little more fun with it because this was kind of coming off the heels of dear wormwood which was mm -hmm. our second full length which was very much like a, a carefully crafted um entire work um i feel like even more so than our first full length which was also like yeah we want there to be like themes and through threads and whatever uh and so after dear wormwood i think part of the thought um at least starting out was this is a chance for us to just have some fun to write two-ish full-length records worth of songs um that we can then sort of release sequentially um you know tour in support of them basically this this will give us a chance to sort of catch up like maggie was saying earlier um, to give ourselves a little more buffer time to, to not feel so much on like the back foot anymore. Um, and so naturally it was not that, um, it, <laughs> it very was more the, it was almost worse than just trying uh, to write a full record. <laughs> oh, it was, I mean, it, it took the same amount of time, I think that two full length records would, and I mean, we even released them close together um like or you know in pairs and we've been asked why did you uh why did you release them the way that you did where you released two and then waited forever and then released the other two back to back and it's like the answer is because we live in an imperfect world and we didn't we didn't reach deadlines we wanted to try and reach and so we did the best that we could with what we we did the best that we could you know it's um but yeah it's like we we wrote about two full length records worth of songs. And it took about the calendar time that I think it would have taken us if we had just been doing two full lengths, maybe a little more, just because we were we were making a full four EP cycle. Um but yeah, it it didn't start out as winds um or wind deities or whatever. Um a lot of the the stuff that we pulled from to start with was um i had been uh after dear wormwood i had kind of just been kicking around musical ideas that um made me think about the four different seasons um just sort of like little instrumental melodies or textures or settings or what have you that um that that 
emotionally made me feel like the four seasons. Uh, and so a lot of the musical content of the EP cycle came from that four season idea, but somewhere along the line of doing, uh, of working on that, I think both of us had the realization, like a lot of people like famous composers, um, prominent uh, modern musical artists have done cycles, you know, inspired by the four seasons what's a what's a slightly different angle we can take so that we won't just feel like we're doing something someone else has already done and so i think uh we both started kind of i feel like greek mythology is probably the most probably the most accessible mythology in america so we we started doing some research uh and stumbled upon these cardinal wind deities that were associated with the the change of the seasons not like the heart of the season itself but like mm. they were they they were the the ones responsible for bringing them in um and so the the ep cycle really started to be about that transition that that change mm. um evolution growth you know uh all of that kind of tied into one thing um, yeah and even even like i don't know you were you were kind of working on that independently because we were in the middle of a big move um mm-hmm. and what i was writing independently was i feel hesitant to to call it like a deconstruction of faith because I feel like I've always felt very on the edges of any sort of traditional manifestation of Christianity. But when we were working on the first two records, it was start like end of 2015, beginning of 2016. And by the time we really you know, started sitting down to take a crack at it. It was a uh, post 2016 election. And I feel like both of us kind of had a lot of just rose tinted glasses kind of ripped from our eyes throughout that whole process that um, literally everybody did nothing yeah. new. Um, but so to, to be able to take I don't know, to take a crack at it from what does it mean to change? Mm. You know, what does it mean to uh, go through the process of, I don't know, being challenged yourself because of things that you've just taken for granted or assumed were like normal to think or feel and then realize, um, no, maybe they're not that normal and maybe they're uh super harmful to other people that i didn't realize um yeah to be able to move away from the idea of we're just in a season of life we're just you know processing this this time and this season to no what is this actually going to mean for me to change and mm. um make something new of who i am as a as a person so that's like kind of why we, yeah, that's kind of why we went with uh, the gods of the winds. 
Maggie and Tyler, it's been absolutely amazing talking with both of you. Uh, it's just been really fun to hear a little bit more about the band's history, your legacy, uh, and even some of the the new um, the new uh, EPs and everything to hear a little bit more about them. And uh, it's just great to hear a little bit more from you. And hopefully, you enjoyed this conversation as well. Yeah, yeah definitely. Thanks, thanks so for much for having, having us. us. To kind of go back to, uh, a little bit about what you were saying just a bit ago, you're obviously making a case for the necessity of doubt and how doubt is integral to faith. Yeah. Um, but you also sort of towards the end of the book talk a little bit about how doubt in and of itself is still not sufficient. Yeah. Um, and so I am curious, what does a spirituality beyond doubt look like? Yeah. Yeah. You know, if, if you think of it this way, um, that faith is not, well, let me not even use the word faith. Let's use this word. What if God is not a destination? But what if God is a journey? Uh, there are a hundred different ways to say this, but let's just play around with that one. This idea that, oh, I've got to get the right beliefs about God, and then I will arrive at knowing God uh, and knowing the truth about God. Well, what if that's not how God is? What if that very assumption is so problematic? Because what God really is, is the voice beckoning us to further growth. At that moment, the very second that I feel I have God figured out, so now I can stop growing, now I can stop seeking, now I can stop changing. In a sense, that's the moment of atheism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because now I've just stopped my journey. Um, and so I think what happens with a faith after, after this very difficult period of doubt is that faith becomes a journey. It becomes a journey into the unknown. And instead of this assumption that, oh, I used to have the wrong beliefs. Well, no, the most serious belief that I had was the belief that I could, I, that all I needed was the right beliefs. <laughs> I needed to lose that belief so that I could now live with a sense of open-mindedness and open-heartedness um, to, uh, to what I would say God really is, which is the love and the truth that's beckoning me into the future. Mm -hmm. You might be hesitant in uh, using these, own ter these terms, but I am uh, interested. How do you see Faith After Doubt being inspiring and liberating theological work? Oh, my gosh. Uh, where do we start? <laughs> well, look, if we just start in very practical terms, you know, we could take any of the issues that are great risks to our existence. Uh, climate change, you know, if people really understand climate change, they understand that it, it's, it's like, you know, it's eight on the Richter scale, right? It, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's the top of, of our threats. Um, and, and other super important things like racism and white supremacy and economic inequality, because of the way climate change works, if climate change happens uh, and it's going to exacerbate every other problem we have, mm -hmm. you better believe that the richest people are going to suffer the least through climate change. And you better believe that racial minorities are going to suffer the most, mm -hmm. right? So you say this, these things matter. Then suddenly you think, 
man, if we don't change our be uh, our belief about how we live with the world, if if we don't have the courage to doubt that the way we're doing it is the only way to do it or is the best way to do it, then we're just going to be stuck with the same mechanisms that we have that are driving us toward uh, disaster for our children, our grandchildren, and our, our, our human and non-human neighbors on this planet. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, but, but I may not have really answered the, qu the question the way you're asking it, so feel free to... Yeah, I, I, I think you're certainly getting right at it. Um, but yeah, how, how do you see faith after doubt being inspiring and liberating theological? Yeah, work? so then you say, well, what could be more inspiring and liberating than facing the issues in my own brain and mm -hmm. heart and formation and those of my fellow humans that threaten us all with destruction? <laughs> I mean, if you want an inspiring challenge, you know, there it is. Uh, if you want to, if, if I can say it more concretely, we live in a world that's driven by the love of money. Uh, what if we actually went through a process of doubt about the way that we conduct our lives so that we now question whether the love of money was the root of all good and we actually came to believe, you know what, the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of destructive evil. Now, we might find out that there's a Bible verse that told us that all the time. <laughs> We've been so well trained to never take that verse seriously. <laughs> right. Uh, so, so that to me is liberating. That to me is inspiring. But it's also a little bit terrifying. And I think this is our great challenge. If we think that some of our false beliefs that we're so resistant to doubt are, are ways that we, that we insulate ourselves from things that are challenging and frightening yeah mm -hmm, mm -hmm. last question brian how can listeners get connected to you in your work um well they can go to brianmclaren.net uh b-r-i-a-n-m-c-l-a-r-e-n.net and there will be connections to twitter and facebook and all that sort of thing and um the the new and the book faith after doubt will be available on january 5th so you can order it now and it will be available kindle and ebook all the different ebook formats and audiobook and print, I understand, on that date. So, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I hope, hope folks will find it helpful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for chatting again, Brian. Um, I think, I'm, I'm trying to think, but I'm pretty sure you are the most featured guest I've ever had on this podcast. I think this oh, is your third man. time now. And so uh, I don't know if I've had, I've had some people who have been on twice. So I think you now have sole, like solely taken the, the top spot of the most featured guests on, on my podcast. So thanks I, again achieved, for chatting. I've achieved supremacy in that way, which there is you go. one of the things we wanted out. But listen, can I just say thanks for your good work? And, you know, really by creating space for people to think and have, have needed conversations, that's so valuable. So thanks. Thanks for having me and thanks for your good work. From setting the ends of my hair on fire If I'm kindling for a little while At least I'd feel of use If you'd like to connect with Brian and the Oh Hellos and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa Menega. And remember, friends, 
Go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.